Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the purpose of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including the 2018 car sales for the first half of the year. They're staggering a bit, but not in a positive sense. We tour around the rural regions outside Canberra in a new Kia that, like all their cars, they have tuned to our local conditions. We review the experience. Alan Zervis brings us up to date on the latest Mini and its connectivity, and Brian Smith and I take a jovial look at some unusual stories of the day, including a man develops an Elon Musk activity by building a network of tunnels beneath his home. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au and this and past programs are podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. The Australian car market for new vehicles slowed in June compared with the same period in 2017, with the total market down 2.9% according to the latest VFAX figures. 2018 had started well, peaking with a monthly increase of 5% in March, but since then each month has been progressively lower than the year before, down 0.2% in April, 2.1% in May and 2.9% in June. In June 2018, the three top-selling vehicles were light commercials, with the Toyota Hilux leading the market, ahead of the Ford Ranger and the Mitsubishi Triton. The good start of the year, however, has ensured that by halfway through 2018, vehicle sales are up 1% in year-to-date terms. Passenger car sales showed a significant decline in June, falling nearly 18%. Not surprisingly, sports utility vehicles accounted for 43% of the total market with sales up over 9%, but that was not across the board. The small SUVs were clearly showing the biggest sale surge. Last week, the Overdrive program mentioned that Jaguar had just broken the water speed record for a boat powered by an electric motor. Toyota is now getting into the water and will support the Energy Observer, a hydrogen-powered autonomous boat. The Energy Observer will promote renewable energy sources and test onboard technologies in some of the world's most extreme conditions. The vessel's power comes from a mix of renewable energies and a system that produces hydrogen from seawater, with the process completely carbon-free. The boat is currently in the Mediterranean and will travel to Northern Europe in 2019. Toyota and the crew plan to reach Tokyo just in time for the city's hosting of the 2020 Olympic Games. Modern car manufacturing can produce some strange bedfellows. The BMW Group and the Chinese manufacturer Great Wall Motors have signed an agreement to produce mini electric vehicles through a 50-50 joint venture based in China. Great Wall is best known here in Australia as having launched a very cheap utility in 2009. A distribution dispute, a poor safety rating and a recall for asbestos meant that it stopped selling in the Australian market for a while. 
The joint venture will be located in Jiangsu province, where both partners will together create a new state-of-the-art production facility. The production of future battery electric mini vehicles in China, the world's largest market for electromobility, is a key element of Mini's continued strategic development within the BMW Group. The implications of the trade war initiated by Donald Trump hit the headlines a little while ago when Harley Davidson said it would have to build more bikes in Europe instead of the United States. Now Tesla appears to be moving in a similar direction. Firstly, they announced a price hike in China for their Model S, rising the price from $107,000 to $127,000. Now they are making plans to build more cars in China. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said Shanghai would become the first location outside the United States for one of its so-called gigafactories. When Rolls-Royce does well, is that a good sign for the car industry or a reflection on a very small number of people in the super wealth class? Whatever the reason, global sales of Rolls-Royce have increased by 13% so far this year. Rolls-Royce sales are holding firm in Europe, the US and other key regions. There are encouraging signs of recovery in the Chinese market. And like all luxury brands, however, the mark says they are facing continued economic headwinds in the Middle East. Their new Cullinan super luxury SUV caused a stir when it was shown to the public in May, but the first customer deliveries for the Cullinan are not due till early next year. One of the great technological steps to help us use public transport has been apps that you can easily access on your phone that give up-to-date information based on public transport timetables, with an ability to find services for your specific requirements. The transport app provider, CityMapper, now wants to incorporate what they call floating transport, and they're not referring to things that go on the water. It is that form of transport that has no stops or infrastructure. The first three that they are covering are bicycles, scooters and mopeds that you can hire. We are now seeing reports that the OFO shared bike company is leaving Australia and some other countries to concentrate on priority markets. In Australia, people hated the fact that the bikes could be left anywhere on the footpath. But CityMapper thinks that technology might provide a solution. Geolocation technology and app design can motivate favourable behaviours from users, they say. And that has been the news. Kia Australia has a policy that every new car they launch onto our market, they bring out a prototype first and take it out on a range of Australian roads, particularly back roads, including those as well, where they do some fine-tuning to suit our conditions. It's not a major overhaul, it is a bit of a tweak. Well, Kia has just launched their latest Sportage medium-size SUV, we did some tripping in it at the launch around the rural areas surrounding Canberra. Alan Zervis and I were there, and Alan joins me on the line. Alan, thanks for your time. Thanks, David. Do you think the roads we went on were appropriate to test it for the Australian back roads conditions? 
Well, they certainly tested both of us. <laughs> At the car, the car didn't seem very bothered. It was uh, trimmed superbly by Graham Gambold. We went from uh, looped around and got to Gunning, which is sort of north of Canberra and is being bypassed. Lovely old town, really, isn't it? Big, wide street, but now it's almost, well, not deserted, but certainly underutilised compared when it used to be the highway. I think all of those country towns bypassed by the um, the Hume, well, the new Hume. They wanted to be bypassed until they were, and then they turned into ghost towns. So, a bit sad, really. They're not that far from Canberra, and you could have that sort of nice little Saturday drive, maybe even a weekend, although I don't know there's a lot of accommodation. The other place, we then went down south, heading towards Canberra, and you get to Collector. Now, the roads we went on there went down to unmarked, one and a half lanes wide. How did the Sportage, from your opinion, handle those sorts of conditions? Because they were a bit bumpy, a bit twisty, and a bit not as formed as a major road might be. Indeed, and you and I were in the base model car to begin with, which I felt handled it beautifully. Of course, then I got into the upper model cars, and uh, they were almost as good. But the uh, the ruts and so forth, particularly undulations in the middle of corners, hardly bothered it. I was just so impressed. The incredible thing was, at one stage, I think you said, look at the speed. Well, no, you said, what speed are we doing? Of which I picked about 80k, yet it was 100. Isn't that a very good indication of a car that's coping well with its environment? Absolutely right. Now, there's one area where perhaps the modern technology wasn't adept in those situations and that's the lane assist now available across the board in the sportage that's where if you wander in the lane and it picks up the lane line markings it'll tug you back into line not take total control but give you a little bit of what they call haptic feedback how did you find the sportage that system there were you comfortable with it like you i fancied turning it off uh, in the more spirited corners I felt is a bit intrusive. It's meant to be like autonomous emergency braking and, and uh, to become eventually a safety feature. But uh, frankly, I could do without it, except uh, perhaps for a long trip. A long trip on a high standard road. But when we got on those back roads where, the well, there might not have even been left-hand side line marking, I found it tugged and pulled me a little bit in ways I just didn't want. Well, you might remember that corner that you went around and uh, you were quite surprised that it tried to tug you into the side of the road that may sound more catastrophic than it was but the the point about it was i wasn't expecting it and it didn't help me i spoke to kia and they said yeah you might as well turn it off as well three engines in this two petrol one diesel they any good look the diesels uh, i think fantastic yeah Uh, for a diesel and i probably wouldn't be my first choice unfortunately i think the petrol engines though they're very good do feel a little bit old and on a couple of occasions when I was overtaking I really did need to sink the boot in. And they sounded like they were straining a little didn't they? They weren't an elegant confident sound, they felt like you're wringing the neck a little bit. The diesel has as much horsepower as the highest petrol engine but it also has heaps more torque, 400 newton metres, that's a lot of pulling power in a medium sized SUV. It is, and you certainly notice it, particularly at lights. Not that we did a lot of lights. We weren't in that car in Canberra where there were uh, traffic lights. But it certainly feels light and breezy, and I think it makes the car feel lighter than it otherwise would. And certainly it felt preferable to the petrol engines.
The pick of the litter, I think, is clearly the diesel engine. The interior, are you impressed with it? I am, I am. I thought that the interior was nice. Again, not uh, of the standard of, say, uh, I think I put in my review a Mazda CX-5 or something of that ilk. But uh, they've certainly improved them no end over the last few years. Now, remember, this car's halfway through its life cycle. Mm. So the next release, we'll see uh, the new Kia interior, and I'm expecting something more maybe along the lines of a stinger. Eight-speed gearbox you get with the diesel. When too much sport is not enough, a Roy and HG line. When too many gears are not enough, do we need that many? Quite right. I think we both thought that the six-speed, although good, it did have a few holes in the ranges where I think the eight-speed was just smooth all the way through. And again, that is the same gearbox from the Stinger as well. We toured around. I enjoyed it immensely. We stopped, as I said, at Collector. I thought Collector was rather a sad town. Well, certainly that monstrosity of a sculpture was just hideous. Across the road from the pub, the Bush Ranger pub, lovely little reflection back to our history. This sculpture, 24 metres long, 7 metres high, by a guy that started it in 1993, and it has a mystical sort of era. It was called Dreamer's Gate, or a homage to my father, so it sort of had... A little bit, if you look closely, mystical bodies in it. I've got to say, I don't know much about sculpture, but I know what I don't like. Well, if that was a, an homage to his father, his father must have been drunk <laughs> and the sculptor must have been on acid. It was just awful. It was just this sort of stucco over chicken wire that um, hmm. hadn't been attended to in probably 20 years and had started to fall apart and it was hideous to begin with. Lovely little country towns and the Kia Sportage is not a bad car to go and see it. We have some videos up on the website. And Alan, if just hang on to the line and we'll also talk about the launch of the new Mini. Lovely. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are back again, and we're talking to Alan Zervis. Alan, you went, I didn't, on the launch of the new Mini. Connectivity is the buzzword of their advertising campaigns. What the heck does that mean? Uh, It was quite an eye-opener, really, to think that this humble little car started by Alec Isagonis has now turned into this, essentially, it's a base model BMW. So it's the same system BMW uses, and it allows the driver to use an app on his phone or her phone to check petrol levels, uh, whether the car's locked or not. It'll tell you where your car is. And there's also a concierge function so that if you want anything, you can ring the web at the uh, call centre and they'll tell you where there's a nearest motel or uh, where there's a good place to eat, etc. I really love that idea that I can check the petrol before I get in the car. Exactly. Because when you get in the car and start it and go... I don't want to have to think about those things. Well, some of the ones that have the the push-button lock on the outside of the car, you made the point at one of the launches that when the mirrors fold in, you can tell the car's locked. Now, when the mirrors don't fold in, you can't tell the car's locked. But on the app, you can just look at that app and it'll tell you, yes, my doors are locked. Now, also, if I had given you the key, and uh, as you know, with those cars with that smart locking and starting system, you can drive off and the key will be in your pocket and the car's halfway up the street. Hmm. So what you can do is if you happen to take off and go off to the airport or whatever, you can actually unlock that car and start it for the person so they can drive it for you. Oh, okay. Which I think is rather amazing. 
And also the, the people at the call centre can help you with things like that as well. So the idea is eventually the cars will be able to talk to each other. But that is a subscription service. BMW and many give you some of that time included in the pro, uh, purchase price of your car. But eventually, you know, if you kept that car for 10 years, obviously you'd have to then subscribe yourself. New Mini, does it still look like a Mini? It does until you put it next to an old Mini. <laughs> and if, if you put it next to one of <laughs> Alec Sagonis's original from the 60s and 70s, Obviously, it's a much bigger car, but I've got to tell you, it was brilliant to drive, and it too has a new gearbox. It's got a seven-speed DCT gearbox and an eight-speed automatic and, of course, a six-speed manual. So they've dropped the diesel in some of the models, which was a slow seller. Diesel Mini just doesn't ring true to me. It's like a four-cylinder Mustang. It might perform well, but it doesn't fit the image. No, a bit like a chocolate teapot in my view. (laughs) Alan, I love your technicalities <laughs> when you talk. Well, what you would have liked, David, is the cordless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Yeah. Now, you know how much I like that system. With BMW and, and Mini, the touchscreen will operate your system just like it would do if you had your phone in your hand. But, of course, you don't have to have your phone in your hand. And you can handle all your telephony, messages and music and so forth completely hands-free just by saying, hey, Siri. You know the other thing I hate about plugging in my phone? Quite often the plugs are buried in the... Console. And I can't see it. And if I get in at night, I've got to turn my phone light on in order to try and find out how to plug it in. Of course, you know there are always three ways, three, to plug in a USB. The first way, which doesn't work. The second way, which doesn't work. And then you put back to the first way and somehow it seems to work anyway. I've noticed that as well. Well, of course, what I do with, uh, when I get a car that I'm not familiar with, which is, let's face it, most of them, is I put a cord in and leave it there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the only way to get around it. But, of course, with this wireless CarPlay, you'd have to be very careful to make sure your phone didn't wind its battery down too much. Oh, yes, of course. They're also getting better simply by putting white surrounds around where the USB comes in. Usually they're black in a black environment. Well, also, some of them, of course, are now lit by LEDs too, which is very, very handy at night. doesn't help you much if you still can't actually get your hand to it, which I have a problem with some of the cars. Ah, the road test of the present and the future. (laughs) It has very little to do with mechanics and an awful lot to do with digital technology. Alan, I love our chats. Thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. And that's Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys, reviewing initially the Kia Sportage medium-sized SUV and then the new Mini. You're listening to Overdrive. And at the end of the program, let's look at some unusual road stories. And isn't it great again to have our good mate, Brian Smith. Okay, Brian. G'day, David. Now, tunnels. Is tunnelling our future? Elon Musk seems to think that it is. Now, there was a story that makes us think about that in a, in a somewhat indirect way, which is very typical of this overdrive program. There's a house where a 21-year-old died in America in September last year, and when they found him, they found that there were tunnels all under his house, some about uh, 200 feet long, according to court documents. And he was killed in a place called Bethsaida, where he was digging a network of secret tunnels. I'm not sure it needs to be so secret, Brian. I think it might be some of the transport of the future. Well, I wondered if this gentleman, who's only young, the the person who owned the house, 
under which were all of these amazing tunnels is Daniel Beckwith. And he was only 27 years old. Uh, and the 21-year-old the gentleman who died was uh, Askia Kafra. Uh, and I just wondered whether he was inspired by um, Musk or whether Musk was inspired by this gentleman. <laughs> so for some time, apparently, Beckwith had been engaged with Kafra in, in some kind of employment situation. He, he employed Kafra to come to his house and dig these tunnels. And it, and it was a little more secretive than that because obviously he must have thought he was on a good idea here and he, he wanted to protect the IP. So uh, <laughs> he, would, he would make this poor gentleman um, wear a, a blindfold in the car. So he'd go and pick him up, he'd drive him in a blindfold to the house, which apparently was filled with rubbish and, and only had, had narrow maze-like pathways through the house. And then he would take him down into the, the basement, in which at which point the Mr. Kaffra would, would work naked digging these amazing tunnels. And it went on for quite some time. Um, and uh, the, the man died in a fire, which was caused by the amazing electrical requirements of these tunnels. So um, there was uh, power cords down there all daisy chained together. Um, and it's not clear what the tunnels were there for or why they needed to be powered. What an amazing story, David. Do you think, do you think he was building his own subway? Yes. Now, in fact, it was that Elon Musk, as you say, was that his business plan of using cheap labour to dig these tunnels? Perhaps it, that's the business model that uh, he has taken on. But, you know, the tunnels were quite significant in terms of transport. British Post, back in the 1850s, I think, had their own delivery system, not for expansively, but just between a couple of major centres, and it was an underground railway. There was just a little underground track. Which is still there with little trains that could run along it. It's not used anymore, but all of this amazing history is still there. Of course, underground rail really unlocked the ability of cities to grow. You know, once you remove that sort of interaction between people and trains on the surface, which really screws down the capacity of, of both of those things, put the rail underneath, you can allow the trains to come right into the heart of the city centre rather than going to sort of your, your central station, which might be at the edge of the city. And uh, and once that happens, then, you know, you can actually build a city that, that people can move around more easily on the surface. So, so the underground is very crucial. Uh, Elon Musk, um, his boring company idea, which is this idea of, uh, of – it's a bizarre idea. It's sort of reinventing the subway but without its capacity. His idea, it seems to be – some people have suggested it's a bit of a boondoggle just to give him uh, a, a ride from where he lives <laughs> to the airport more easily. I talked to a guy one time at a conference who was – an international consultant on very fast trains in India is building a very fast train which surprisingly doesn't go on the highest frequent route but goes to the city where the Prime Minister lives. <laughs> that old boondoggle. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because the tunnel is often then the way of splitting the conflict between uh, the disparity between different transport systems and so the tunnels we're often getting now are arcades in shopping areas where people can walk and avoid the conflict it is of course out of the sunlight but nonetheless it's got plenty commercial activity to it but the thing about elon musk is that you're quite right he's not building a high capacity route system 
but he is building a system, be it like pods, that you could put freight on as well. Mm. And if you had a tunnel or if you had a corridor of any sense where you could run people during the day and run freight at night without creating noise, then perhaps we might have an efficient system in another sense, not necessarily in being able to carry a huge number of people, but being able to carry both people and freight in an automated system. So that you went to the station, you got into your pod, and then your pod was loaded onto the tube, and whoosh, away you go. A little bit, a little bit. Now, I heard a history of it the other day, the pneumatic way they used to distribute things around offices, tubes. Oh, the little tubes with Mm. the rolled up piece of paper in it that you've you put in the tube. I think that's a great idea. I think you should take it up with Elon. Uh, David, it's, it's quite easy to get in touch with you, it seems. You just have to criticise him on Twitter and he'll very quickly engage in conversation with you. It works for the president, doesn't it? <laughs> that's true. That's very democratic. Uh, all right. Now, Brian, last week we talked about the EU potentially suing a couple of German cities because they didn't meet pollution targets. Is the courts the way to push things? The reason I say that is that the institutes that support people who are blind are now having a strong go at New York City because they maintain thousands of traffic lights, but there's only a very small proportion they said tens of thousands, 10,000 traffic lights, but only 317 are equipped with accessible pedestrian signals for those who are blind. It's a very serious issue, but the broader point is, is the courts going to be the way to do it? Because there is also the issue that if we don't have good line marking, we may not be able to have autonomous vehicles. So if there is an accident, do you not sue the other driver or the other car manufacturer of autonomous vehicles? But the council who did not keep the line marking up to date. Well, New York has form when it comes to not really looking after its uh, public transportation system and, I think, uh, the pedestrian network. Um, so New York um, City Transit Authority has got a new chief, right? And he, his aim is to, to try and make the subway run on time because the subway's got a very bad reputation there. Do you have a guess at what it's on-time running uh, measure is David. What percentage oh, of tr- trains run on time? Are on time. Eighty percent. Fifty-eight percent. David, it's, it's just one of the worst figures I've ever seen. So they've got form, and they and I don't think they can be. People can get the service that they want or the improvement that they want just by asking for it. So I, I think uh, uh, in this case, um, money talks, and uh, if the the council and the city has been um, uh, neglecting. Mm. the needs of its users, then uh, they should be held to account. And the best way in the US to do it is class action suits. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell, Alan Zervis and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au 
or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>